A reading from Exodus, chapter 17, starting with verse 1. The whole Israelite community set out from the desert of Sin, traveling from place to place as the Lord commanded. They camped at Rephidim, but there was no water for the people to drink. So they quarreled with Moses and said, Give us water to drink. Moses replied, Why do you quarrel with me? Why do you put the Lord to the test? But the people were thirsty for water there, and they grumbled against Moses. They said, Why did you bring us up out of Egypt to make us and our children and livestock die of thirst? Then Moses cried out to the Lord, What am I to do with these people? They are almost ready to stone me. The Lord answered Moses, Go out in front of the people, take with you some of the elders of Israel, and take in your hand the staff with which you struck the Nile, and go. I will stand there before you by the rock at Horeb. Strike the rock, and water will come out of it for the people to drink. So Moses did this in the sight of the elders of Israel. And he called the place Massa and Meribah, because the Israelites quarreled, and because they tested the Lord, saying, Is the Lord among us or not? The word of the Lord. A reading from the letter to the Romans, chapter 5, starting with verse 1. Therefore, since we have been justified through faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have gained access by faith into this grace in which we now stand. And we boast in the hope of the glory of God, not only so, but we also glory in our sufferings, because we know that suffering produces perseverance, perseverance, character, and character, hope. And hope does not put us to shame, because God's love has been poured out into our hearts through the Holy Spirit, who has been given to us. You see, at just the right time, when we were still powerless, Christ died for the ungodly. Very rarely will anyone die for a righteous person, though for a good person someone might possibly dare to die. But God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since we now have been justified by his blood, how much more shall we be saved from God's wrath through him? For if, while we were God's enemies, we were reconciled to him through the death of his Son, how much more, having been reconciled, shall we be saved through his life? Not only is this so, but we also boast in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. A reading from the Holy Gospel according to John. Jesus came to a town of Samaria called Sychar, near the plot of land that Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there. Jesus, tired from his journey, sat down there at the well. It was about noon. A woman of Samaria came to draw water. Jesus said to her, give me a drink. His disciples had gone into town to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, how can you, a Jew, ask me? a Samaritan woman, for a drink. For Jews use nothing in common with Samaritans. Jesus answered and said to her, If you knew the gift of God and who is saying to you, Give me a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. The woman said to him, Sir, you do not even have a bucket, and the cistern is deep. Where then can you get this living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob? 
who gave us this cistern and drank from it himself with his children and his flocks? Jesus answered and said to her, everyone who drinks this water will be thirsty again, but whoever drinks the water I shall give will never thirst. The water I shall give will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. The woman said to him, sir, give me this water so that I may not be thirsty or have to keep coming here to draw water. Jesus said to her, go, call your husband and come back. The woman answered to him, I do not have a husband. Jesus answered her, you are right in saying, I do not have a husband, for you have had five husbands, and the one you have now is not your husband. What you have said is true. The woman said to him, sir, I can see that you are a prophet. Our ancestors worshiped on this mountain, but you people say that the place to worship is in Jerusalem. Jesus said to her, believe me, woman, the hour is coming when you will worship the Father neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem. You people worship what you do not understand. We worship what we understand because salvation is from the Jews. But the hour is coming and now here when true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. And indeed, the Father seeks such people to worship him. God is spirit and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. The woman said to him, I know that the Messiah is coming, the one called Christ. When he comes, he will tell us everything. Jesus said to her, I am he, the one speaking with you. At that moment, his disciples returned, and they were amazed he was talking with a woman. But still no one said, what are you looking for? Or why are you talking with her? The woman left her water jar and went into the town and said to the people, come see a man who told me everything I've done. Could he possibly be the Christ? They went out of the town and came to him. Meanwhile, the disciples urged him, Rabbi, eat. But he said to them, I have food to eat, which you do not know of. So the disciples said to one another, could someone have brought him something to eat? Jesus said, my food is to do the will of the one who sent me and to finish his work. Do you not say in four months the harvest will be here? I tell you, look up and see the fields ripe for harvest. The reaper is already receiving payment and gathering crops for eternal life so that the sower and reaper can rejoice together. For here the saying is verified that one sows and another reaps. I sent you to reap what you have not worked for. Others have done the work and you are sharing in the fruits of the work. Many of the Samaritans of that town began to believe in him because of the word of the woman who testified, he told me everything I have done. When the Samaritans came to him, they invited him to stay with them, and he stayed there two days. Many more began to believe in him because of his word, and they said to the woman, we no longer believe because of your word, for we have heard for ourselves, and we know that this is truly the Savior of the world. The Gospel of the Lord. Praise to you, Lord Christ. We're in the third Sunday in Lent. That is possibly the longest gospel reading that we have of the, of the year, but it's a beautiful story. Um, I think it's a good time, to good week, to take a minute and just remember where we were on this Sunday three years ago. Um, so here we follow this pattern of readings called the Revised Common Lectionary, which is where these pattern of these three readings and a psalm are repeated every three years. So we go through the whole cycle every three years. 
And so this means that the last time we heard these readings was March 15th, 2020, which was a pretty big week in the world. (laughs) Um, On March 15th, i be honest, we didn't know as a church what to do. Uh, A lot of churches didn't. We didn't know. We thought maybe this would be a week where the world was kind of weird, and then we'd kind of get back on track with what we were supposed to do. Uh, We knew some churches weren't meeting in person. At that time, it was kind of odd to not meet in person because of a an illness that was spreading. Okay, what what does that mean? And I remember that we still went ahead and held our service, but we said, hey, if you feel weird about this COVID thing, you can stay home, it's fine. And then we quickly, last minute, set up an iPhone and we tried to do a quick live stream on Facebook Live to try to capture what we were doing in that moment. And um, here was my message in the newsletter leading up to that Sunday for that week three years ago. It's been quite a Lent. Last week, Nashville was hit by devastating tornadoes, and this week it appears that the coronavirus continues to spread around the world at a significant rate. On a smaller scale, but still important, our church is searching for a new meeting place. We're being challenged to take this dependence thing literally. You know the news, but what is our challenge as Christians during this time? Christians seek to affirm two things at the same time. One, Life is precious. This world matters. This is the impulse that leads us to do all that we can do to care for those in the world who are suffering, to look out for the vulnerable in our communities and take care of our physical bodies. Number two, this life is not the end. We do not have to be unnecessarily afraid. We have hope beyond this life. While this all seems rather mysterious and difficult to grasp, The Christian faith affirms that Christ's resurrection is the real proof of this future hope. We are not fully in control. That is scary, but it's also really beautiful. We can trust in God's work and rest in his hand. This Sunday, our passages show us places of real need, challenge us to trust, and promise hope. I remember when we met in person at that time, if you remember, we thought hand sanitizer was kind of the answer to everything, right? Remember that? Um, So we had hand sanitizer everywhere, and I remember this practice, and we all were kind of wondering what's happening, what's going on. But I do think that sense of dependence that we stepped into last week, or last or three years ago, was uh, is really the sense of Lent. It's the sense of Lord, we don't know exactly what the future holds, but we trust in you and we rest in you. So I think it's fitting three years ago, and it's fitting today for us to hear stories about being unmoored, about longing for something. So in our first reading, we hear of a time when Israel's been delivered from Egypt. They find themselves wandering in the desert. They're led from place to place as the Lord commanded. In the desert, they have some needs, some real needs. The presenting need is that they're thirsty. Have you ever been so hungry or thirsty that you just want to fight somebody? This is the phenomenon that we notice in our lives. Okay, none of you have? Fine, great. I have. (laughs) We've noticed this with our daughter after school, that the child I pick up at 315 is not the same child who she will be after she's had her after school snack. That over the years, we've learned to bring a snack with us to pick up. Otherwise, when I pick her up, she is ready to fight me. But it's clear from Scripture, of course, especially in the Psalms, there's nothing wrong with complaining to God about the things that are happening in our lives and the ways that people treat us. The desert seems like a God-forsaken place, but it's not. 
God has led the people there. And often when we find ourselves in our most vulnerable, dependent places, we turn to the thing that we think will most satisfy us. For the children of Israel, the thing that they remember, the last place that they remember where their needs were fully met was in Egypt, in slavery. Now, it was slavery, but at least they knew that that's where they could get their needs met. For us, the places where we turn, where we're most vulnerable, maybe things like performance, approval, workaholism, shopping, alcohol, or pornography, because at least we know we can be in control of that. But we forget that that thing that we turn to is actually slavery. Of course, there's nothing wrong with performing well, with getting other people's approval. There's nothing wrong with work or shopping or alcohol or sex. All of these are good in their context. But the problem is when we depend on them to meet our needs, they can become little gods for us. So the question we ask is the same question the Israelites asked. Is the Lord among us? Where is God in our times of need? Now, for Israel, this should be obvious, right? God delivered his people from Egypt. And if we remember the whole plagues and Red Sea thing, God set them free. Of course he's with them, we might say. Of course God's with you. How could you possibly forget that? And yet their need, when their need emerges, it causes them to doubt. So Moses turns to God, which is really what Israel should have been doing all along. But he's afraid. What am I to do with this, these people? They're almost ready to stone me. Well, notice that God doesn't give Moses advice on how to deal with them. He doesn't give them a conflict resolution strategy. He doesn't give them, hey, here's a way that you leadership skills can kind of help you navigate this situation. He merely tells him, here's how to get water. Now, he's told Moses is instructed to pass before the people, which if he's really about to be stoned by the people, if they're really that upset, even that, passing in front of the people, is an act of trust. Because they're gonna, he's going to get in front of some people that are really mad at him at this point. Does he trust God to save him from his own people? Now, notice in their thirst, God does provide. God tells Moses to hit a rock and water will come out. So think about this. Moses thinks stones will be the source of his death, right? He's about to be stoned. But actually, God directs him to a stone or to a rock, which brings life. In fact, The rock is located on Mount Horeb, which is the same place where Moses will later receive the law. So both are a source of life for the community, water and law. The reading never says, notice this, that God was not going to provide for his people. It never says that. It never says God was really just content with leaving them thirsty, and then Moses begged to the Lord, and then he gave them water. No. It's not that God's hand needed to be moved in order to give them water. They had a real need but they lacked the confidence in God that their real need would be met. So they began to look for alternatives. This will be the ongoing theme of Israel's story, and it is often the reality of our story. One of the best definitions I know for sin is sin is an inappropriate response to a legitimate need. An inappropriate response to a legitimate need. We all have real needs in our life for basic necessities and love and acceptance and validation and community and relationship. But we are ever tempted to get those needs met outside of God's desire for us. 
So the children of Israel experience this need and they see it as abandonment. God has abandoned us. And each of us will experience that on a consistent basis. God doesn't promise us a life where we won't need anything. But he does promise that he will meet our needs, not always in the way we choose or in our timing, but he will always be faithful. So the same staff that strikes the rock for water is the staff that God used to strike the Nile River. So it's the same staff that God uses to deliver them from the, uh, sl- from the slavery in Egypt and to bring about the plagues is the same staff that's used here to strike the water and bring them life and provide for them. I want to look now, I've got all this great stuff on Romans passage, but we've, we're short on time today. So I want to look at our gospel reading. In our gospel reading, we hear that Jesus sat by a well in the unlikely neighborhood of Sychar in Samaria, and there's a woman who shows up. Now, the story of a, a Jewish religious figure meeting a woman at a well in a foreign land is really common throughout the Old Testament. So if you notice, a lot of the patriarchs we see with Isaac and Jacob and Moses and Saul, and then in the Song of Songs, that there's all these stories of like uh, these men of God who meet their wives at a well. So this is a pretty common thing. In fact, this well is called Jacob's Well. It's named after Jacob, where Jacob met his wife. In fact, there's quite a bit of wedding imagery in John's gospel already. It's kind of setting us up in some interesting ways. Yet John flips the script with this story. It's never quite what we expect. We're reading and we're going along and it seems like there's wedding imagery happening. And then John does something really different in the life of Jesus. So Jesus is tired, the sun is beating down, it's about noon, and the Samaritan woman has come to draw water, and Jesus says to her, will you give me a drink? Now, you've probably heard before that Jews and Samaritans had a mutual prejudice towards one another. So Jesus' request is a cross-cultural risk. And the woman acknowledges that this is odd behavior in verse 9. Jesus said, if you knew the gift of God, who it is that asked you for a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. So she's at the well, presumably because of her real need, as we all have, for water. She's drawing water. But Jesus perceives that she, like Nicodemus in a story we had a couple weeks ago, has a deeper need. And she offers her living water. Which that sounds really mystical to us. What's living water? But it was just a way in the ancient world of talking about water that was moving as opposed to water that sat still. So it was a river, like in the, in the Didache, which is an early church document. It says when you baptize people, it's great if you have living water. So if you have running water, that's great. But then it says if you don't have water, just use cold water or living water. Just use cold cistern water. If you don't have cold cistern water, it's okay. Just use whatever you have, basically what the Didache says. So this idea of living water is running water. So she's here and she's drawing from a well, a cistern. It's been sitting there and she's going, you know where there's living water? You know where there's water that's running? Where is that? Jesus, of course, is referring to himself. We've already seen in John's gospel, he's the light in darkness. Well, here he is water to a thirsty soul. When the woman requests the water which Jesus has promised, He tells her to go and call her husband. When she says she has no husband, he has this revelation of divine foreknowledge, and he says, you are right when you say you have no husband. The fact is you have had five husbands, and the man you have now is often your husband, or is is not your husband. So 
we need to stop there for a second because what happens with a lot of preachers and commentators throughout history is we tend to read the story and then they've characterized this woman as having a wayward sexual history or marriage history even. But this actually reads too much into the story. It reads into the story stuff that's not there and it misses the harsh realities of the ancient world. Her situation could have happened from a variety of different circumstances. In this world, life expectancy was low, so it was really common for you to lose a spouse, for them to die in their 20s or 30s in this world. So remarriage was really common. There was lots of remarriage that happened. Divorce also happened frequently in this world. In first century Palestine, a woman could not bring forward a divorce on her own. She had to have a man's assistance. So the question of divorce was this, also this really hot-button issue for the Jews. And the different rabbinic schools at the time, Hillel and Shammai, had different perspectives on when someone could get a divorce and what the grounds for divorce could be. Marriage was a family thing. And the only legally binding thing in a marriage was a dowry document that was drawn up between families, two families. There was no state marriage document. There was no way that you were married by the state at this time at all. It was only that dowry document. There was, and in fact, there's no extant evidence. We've not seen any previous examples of a woman in this situation at this time where she would have had five husbands. That was a unique and very um, different kind of situation. And we have no reason to assume any particular scenario for her. If she were divorced for adultery, it's extremely unlikely that she would get married again. That just didn't happen. It would be very extremely unlikely that she'd get married four more times. It's also possible that she buried five husbands. So she's gone through a lot in her life. Jesus points out that she's had five husbands. The man she's with now is not her husband. So her situation's remarkable, and there's no way Jesus could have just had a lucky guess here. Oh, yeah, I think you've been married five times. No, this was, this was odd. This was different. So it raises a question for us. So is this woman living in sin, as we might say? Well, that's a complicated question. This practice of bigamy or taking a second wife was common in, the first, in first century Palestine, and it was accepted in some Jewish communities. They said it was okay to have more than one wife. If that was the case, what may be happening is Jesus will not affirm that her community patterns are God's best. So she won't say that this man who's taken her as a second wife is, that's God's best. For Jesus, the two shall be one flesh. But she also could be living in a concubine situation. She could be living with a man who has future heirs, and those heirs don't want their father to get into any kind of financial agreement at all. And so she can live with him, but she can't actually enter into a formal commitment. She could have been with a Roman soldier who would not allowed to be married, be allowed to be married until he comes off of active duty. Widows at this time who didn't remarry would often live with kinsmen, a male family member, a father, brother, uncle, or something. Maybe Jesus is referring to that man. He said you had five husbands, but now you're living because of your situation with this kinsman. Widows might also live with their children or with other women with who they were related. Notice Jesus makes no reference to this woman's sin or to the need for forgiveness. In the same way, it's really unlikely that this woman is viewed by the community as immoral. 
Otherwise, she likely, they wouldn't believe what she said to them. So she quickly brings up the fact that Jesus, the two of them have significant religious differences. Okay, we got differences here. Uh, We worship on different mountains. Now, as a pastor, I've had a fair share of times in my life where people have found out that I'm a pastor and due to some hurt or religious trauma, they want to argue really quickly. So they want to point out our differences and the problems that they have, which is fine. And this is because conversations about spirituality touch on our deepest needs and hopes and fears. This is why we're often told never to discuss religion or politics at family gatherings, (laughs) because each are deeply sensitive and tribal and often full of deep fears and past pain. So the woman says, I know that the Messiah who's called the Christ is coming. And when he comes, he will proclaim all things to us. So in other words, when the Messiah comes, he's going to sort it all out. He's going to fix it all for us. And Jesus says, I am he, the one who is speaking to you. So Jesus is saying, I am the one who sorts it all out. I have shined light on your darkness. I am water to your thirst. And I will put your life and the world as it should be. So whatever our physical and tangible needs are, God has stepped into those needs. He feels them, he knows them, and Jesus is literally poured out for us as living water. So as Jesus sees her and knows her, something happens to this woman. She is empowered to be a witness. And it says she left her water jar behind. This is a pattern with followers of Jesus, if you notice. They keep leaving stuff behind. So some of the disciples leave their fishing nets behind. One leaves his tax tables behind. They leave their swords and daggers behind. All the things that we thought were so important to our identity and who we are are now considered worth leaving. So we might ask ourselves today, what do we leave behind? The messages that have been passed down to us as to who we are or why we matter our need for control, our quest to achieve more, our political identity. This woman leaves it all behind and her witness transforms a city. By the way, if anyone ever asks you if women can be preachers, show them that this woman saw a city transformed by her simple proclamation that this man knows her and did not reject her. So a few things I want you to hear today as I end. First of all, is the reminder that God knows you. God knows us. During difficult seasons, especially in this season of Lent where we're intentionally asking God to search our hearts, God may begin to reveal in us some things that we didn't see before, some places where we've been choosing inappropriate responses to real needs in our life. We become aware of these things and we're convicted of them, not out of shame, but because God loves us. Second, God cares about your real needs. So no matter how dark, God is with us in vulnerability. I want you to hear today, every time you hurt, every time you're in need, God is with you. You are not broken without him being broken. You are not rejected without him tasting your rejection. Third, he is living water to quench your thirst. Sometimes in the midst of our real needs, we turn to other things. We go back to slavery because we're convinced, we've convinced ourselves that unsatisfying things will satisfy us. But he calls us beyond well water to living water. And then finally, he empowers you to witness. 
when we leave our well-watered jars behind, our nets behind, our tax table behind, our witness is powerful. So we live in a world today that's seeking control and performance and safety and money and sex and power at all costs. The liberating witness of the church is there is something better, revealing light and thirst-quenching water. So may we embrace being known. May we trust, especially in difficult circumstances, that we are not alone. May we seek to be a people formed by that which is true. And may we be guided in the ways in which we are to leave it all behind and follow. Amen.